If you would turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, John chapter 14, after a few weeks break, we are back in the Gospel of John, picking up exactly where we left off. Um, We have still many chapters left in this Gospel. Probably we will be together in it for at least another year. But the interesting thing is, is that the events that are covered by the remainder of this gospel only cover a few days in Jesus' life. John brings us very closely in to see the details of what Jesus wants us to know and to see the details of what he's done. And so this morning we have a very well-known text before us, the first six verses of John chapter 14. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word, for the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient, and the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. John chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we thank you that you have given to us your word that you are the God who speaks, that you reveal yourself through your word and especially through your Son. We pray this morning, Lord, that as we study your word, we would come to know you better, to love you more fervently, and to serve you even more eagerly. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The Jesus of the Gospels is very different than the Jesus of popular imagination. Most people in the world are glad to imagine Jesus in a way that suits their needs. They think about Jesus as a tolerant, non-demanding, unthreatening, kind teacher. This is so because people see themselves as basically good, in need, perhaps, of a little bit of help, but after all, they're better than most others. They don't think about Jesus as Savior because they don't think they need saving. And so they frankly don't pay much attention to what Jesus says. But in the Gospels, we see a very different Jesus. Jesus knows that we are in great need, more than we ever realize. And he knows 
that only he can meet that need. So he calls us to himself as the only one who can save us. And that's what Jesus is doing here in our text. He's not beating around the bush. He's not trying to make us feel good about ourselves. He is telling us that we have a very serious problem. And that he is the only one who can resolve that problem. We would do well to listen to Jesus. In one of the most well-known passages in John's Gospel, we will see this morning three things. First, we will see our problem. Secondly, we will see Jesus' solution. And then thirdly, we will see Jesus' exclusive claim. Our problem, Jesus' solution, and Jesus' exclusive claim. Let's begin then by looking at our problem. And Jesus addresses our problem head on. He knows that his disciples are troubled. He knows that they are afraid. That's how he begins this passage in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. And then he goes on to tell them about the place that he has prepared for them. He knows that they're going through a difficult time. If you recall what we have seen before, they've just had the Last Supper. Jesus has told them that one of them would betray him. They can see that he is sorrowful of heart. They can see the blackness of the night, if you will, coming upon them. Jesus knows their need. And the first part of their need is shown by this interchange with Thomas. Jesus says, where I am, you will be also. And Thomas says, how can that be? We don't even know where you're going, Lord. How do we know the way? And what underlies all of this is an understanding and a feeling that the great problem we have is alienation from God. Man is separated from God. What makes that so problematic is that man was made for communion with God. God made all of mankind in his image. Man was different from everything else in creation. Now, I realize that at this point in time in our culture, there are voices that are doing everything they can to flatten out creation. To say that men and women and children are really not that different from dolphins or tigers, or dogs, or even bugs. The Bible says that's completely untrue. The Bible declares to us that God created man specially. That he made man and woman in his image. And that in his image, we take after God. Man is the rational being. Man has emotions, desires, wills. Man has attributes like God does. And this is buttressed by the fact that we read in Genesis that God gave Adam the dominion over all the rest of creation. This is specifically seen in that Adam is the one who names every animal, showing his dominion. And Genesis also tells us that 
Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden, in the cool of the day, the text tells us. And the implication of this is that there was a relationship between God and man. But in sinning, God had that relationship broken. Adam broke that relationship. Adam disobeyed God. God, in his grace and generosity, had told Adam that he could eat of any of the trees in the garden except one. Now, you may wonder, when you think about that story, what's so special about the one? Is it a poison tree? Is the fruit especially good or especially bad? Why did God pick out that one? And I think the answer is right before us. That God, in His generosity and grace, opened up everything to Adam, but He reserved one thing to see if Adam would obey Him. Keep His command. Not because of the nature of the tree, but because it had been spoken by God. And Adam disobeyed God directly. God had said, you shall not eat of this tree, and Adam did. But worse than that, In his disobedience, Adam called God a liar. Because God had told Adam, you shall not eat of this tree, because in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And when Adam and Eve ate of the tree, they were saying to God, we don't believe you. You're lying to us. You're being unrighteous and denying us things through untruth. That's what Adam was saying. Adam put his own desires above his relationship with God. Now, this is something that should strike home to us because I think all of us have experienced the pain of a broken or a strained relationship. Even the youngest among us with school chums. And what happens when you're in a relationship with someone and they put their own needs and desires above that relationship? They say, I don't care about this relationship. I don't care about you. It's got all about me. I need to have it for me. We can look at that easily and say, well, that's sin. That's wrong. That's bad. So it is in the garden. Adam separated himself from God through sin. And so Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. And so instead of blessing... They were under God's wrath and curse, alienated from God. But another effect of sin, beyond being alienated from God, was a darkening of our minds. Ignorance and falsehood took hold upon mankind. It began with Adam, because Adam thought he could be a god. He believed Satan's lie. That he would be like God. That he would be a God. And it continued when Adam and Eve hid from God. Can you imagine that? Thinking that you could hide yourself from the creator of the universe. Falsehood, ignorance takes hold. In the fall, we have lost the ability to think properly and spiritually. The fall has bound us up in ignorance. I mean, you see this, don't you? If you're anything like me, this sort of thing happens to you. You get up and you go into a room and you look around and you say, why did I come into this room? What was I going to do? 
And then you backtrack and trace your steps hoping you'll see something or hear something that will remind you what you forgot 30 seconds ago. Right? That's the result of the fall. But that's not that bad. That's just some ignorance. The fall has affected our ability to think spiritually at all. We don't think after God's thoughts. We don't think after God's ways. We don't believe what God says. We've lost that ability. We're bound in darkness and night. And our enemy, the devil, loves this. He wants to keep us in darkness. Because darkness gives him power. Darkness makes us miserable. And he rejoices in that. Darkness keeps us hopeless. Because, you see, we don't know where to go. That's Thomas's question here in verse 5. Where do we go, Lord? We don't know the way. We see it all around us, don't we? In questions that we can't even begin to answer. In the failure of our lives to be lives of blessing and hope. But there's another effect of sin. It's death. You see, each of these three things are the opposite of what Jesus says in verse 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the opposite of life, the reason we need life, is because we experience death. Death is the ultimate hopelessness. Death is our greatest fear. But there is more than death of the body. The death that God spoke of in the garden was more than physical. It was a spiritual death that made us incapable of coming to God or even understanding Him. All we desired was sin and wickedness, following the course of the world, ignorant of God. It was a judicial death, a sentence of judgment upon sin. Paul tells us that the wages of sin is death. And so by our sin, we merit the wrath of God. And this death is so much more than the termination of life. Our sin has offended an infinitely holy God. And therefore, we merit infinite punishment. Our problem is very bleak. So what is our hope? It can't be to seek God on our own. Because we're alienated from Him. It can't be to find the way for ourselves because we're ignorant and we don't have the truth. It can't be to save ourselves because we are dead in our sins. Our hope is found in Jesus. Jesus is the solution. Jesus is the one who came to give us hope. Jesus came to reverse sin and its effects. In this passage, Jesus tells us that he is all that we need. Jesus reconciles us to God. We are alienated from God, but Jesus tells us that he is the way. He is the way to God. Now, a way presupposes two points. You go from one place... To another place. And so Jesus doesn't tell us, you know, you're okay. Don't worry about it. He doesn't say, you know, you don't really need the Father. You look in pretty good shape to me. 
No, he tells us that we need to go from where we are now, sin and misery and death, to the Father. We need to make that transition. We need to go along that way. Now, how can we be reconciled with the Father? What stands in the way of us reconciling with God? What keeps us alienated from God? The answer is sin. And Jesus is telling us here in John 14, 6, that he can bridge the gap of sin. More than that, he can remove sin that is a barrier to our relationship with God. He is the way that that is accomplished. We can be right with God because Jesus removes our curse. Give up thinking that your hope is being a bit better than others around you. Give up thinking that you can cancel out the bad things you've done with the good things that you will do. Jesus tells you that's not the way. The way is to believe in him. Your hope is to put your faith in Jesus Christ and to receive his finished work. The atonement that he has made on the cross, bearing your curse and giving you his righteousness. But more than that, Jesus also maintains our relationship with the Father. He not only removes the punishment of sin, he breaks its power. Sin has no more dominion over the believer in Christ. Jesus makes it possible for us to live lives pleasing to God. Not perfect lives, as we become more and more like Christ, but lives following God's law, doing what God loves, seeking what God seeks. And how does he do this? Jesus does this by his sacrifice. He makes us his people. He sends his spirit to work in us love, peace, joy, all the fruits of the spirit. Jesus is the way that solves the problem of alienation from God. But Jesus also shows us the truth. He tells us, I am the truth. He enlightens us. Jesus shows us the truth about God and about ourselves. Now, you can see this just in the formulation of Jesus' statement. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We've seen this phrase before, I am. Several times. This is actually the sixth time we've seen it. And you may recall me telling you a little bit of Greek. That this in the Greek is ego eimi. I am that I am. It is the divine name of God. It is the Greek version from Exodus. When Moses asks God, who shall I say sent me? And God says, I am sent you. So Jesus is right now declaring once again, as he has before, that he is God. And so you see, when he says, I am the truth, what he's saying is, I can truly tell you about God. Look at me. Hear me. Believe me. I am God. And we see this 
Later, we'll look at it next week in verse 8. Philip asks this question, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus answers and he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the express image of God, the scripture says. If we know and see Jesus, we have seen the Father. Jesus has been saying this over and over again. In John chapter 10, he said, I and the Father are one. In John chapter 12, he says, whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. John in his prologue in the first chapter says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus is the revelation of God to us. He is the truth. We can know true truth about God because of Jesus. We don't need to guess. We don't need dreams. We don't need fantasies. We need Jesus. He teaches us about God. There is real, true truth in the world. You don't get to decide what is true about God. He's unchanging. But you can know him. Because Jesus has made God known. You don't need to be troubled. You don't need to be mystified. Know that Jesus is the truth. Jesus also tells us the truth about ourselves. Jesus is more concerned that we know the truth than that we are comfortable. He tells us our true need and who we are. Have you had the experience of someone keeping the truth from you because they thought it would make your life easier or that you'd be happier? Perhaps they didn't want to ruin a good day you were having by telling you that that paper was actually due tonight instead of tomorrow. And then the next day came and they said, well, I just, you were having such a good day. And again, if you're Italian like me, you're throwing up your hands and screaming and yelling, what are you doing? Do I look happy? Right? We understand what that looks like. And the point is, Jesus doesn't do that. He speaks the truth to us. He tells us who we are. He tells us we must be born again. He tells us we must have faith. Faith like a child. Complete trust in him. He tells us we must repent or we will perish. He doesn't spare us the truth. Think about how merciful this is. You don't have to go and find yourself. Jesus tells you who you are. And he tells you what you need. Look at verse 1. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. That verb is an imperative verb. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. Believe. Well, finally, Jesus' solution is that he gives freedom from death. Death is our inheritance from sin. We see it in the fact of physical death around us all the time. Even before death, we see pain and sickness. We see suffering. I'll remind again the young people who seem sometimes to be immune from this. There will come a day when you will get up and start your day and your body will make noises that you didn't think it could ever make. And your arms and your knees will not work the way they're supposed to. 
Because that's the result of sin in the world. Sin brings pain and suffering and sickness and death. We see it in the chaos of the world around us. Everywhere we look, there is harm and pain and suffering. And we know it in our inability, apart from Christ, to save ourselves. You know, sometimes we think generically that we can be the solution to our sin. I'm just going to stop sinning. I'm just going to do the right thing all the time. Now, this is a very appropriate date for me to make this illustration. So let me ask you, it's January 7th. How many of you still have a New Year's resolution? Most not. Because if you're anything like me, you make a resolution on New Year's Day or New Year's Eve, I am going to eat healthier. I am going to exercise more. I'm going to the gym every day. I'm waking up and going to the gym. I am going to spend less time on my devices. I am going to do this. I am going to do that. And if you are in the top percentile of Americans, you make it to January 3rd or 4th. You just can't do it. Now, if you can't keep a diet, what makes you think that you can turn yourself into a perfectly holy person? It can't be done. We need Jesus. Jesus is the one who gives life. And we have a picture of this when he raises people from the dead. We've seen this here in this gospel in the example of Lazarus. You remember Lazarus. He's not mostly dead. He's completely dead. He's so dead you will remember the vivid description. Lord, he stinks. He's decaying. Lazarus is not getting up and saying, I think I'll go for a walk. And moving the the stone and having a lark. No, he's completely dead and Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And he is alive. He comes in grave clothes, but Jesus has brought life from death. We see it also in the life change that Jesus makes in people. Peter goes from being a fearful man who is afraid of a servant girl and denies Jesus. To a man who is fearless and preaches with boldness. At Pentecost. Paul goes from being a murderer to being a loving pastor. The world is literally turned upside down by Jesus. But most of all, we see it in Jesus' promise to us. He gives us not just life, but eternal life. He tells us there's more than just this world. That's what the opening few verses say. Verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. This is not all there is, people. I've told you over the years that there are a number of bumper stickers that are blasphemous lies. Add this to your notebook. He who dies with the most toys wins. Not only is this not all there is, this life is a fraction of what there is. If you live to the ripe old age of a hundred, how does that compare to eternity? 
You see, Jesus gives eternal life. He says that we will never perish because no one can snatch us out of his hands. He says he will not cast out the one who trusts in him in John 6, 27. He says that we will not come into judgment but pass from death into life in John 5, 24. Jesus is not asking you to take a leap in the dark. That's how some people think faith works. That you have to believe in Jesus and it's like jumping in the dark and hoping there's ground under you when you land. That's not what Jesus says here. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. He is telling you he has prepared a place for you, a blessed place. He's telling you that he will be with you. It's not a leap in the dark, it's a leap in the light. We know everything that we will receive. Because in his grace, Jesus has told us, for the believer, death is not the end. It holds no fear. Why? Because of Jesus. Well, Jesus gives all these promises, but there's more. He doesn't say that he is a way. He says he is the way. Jesus makes this exclusive claim. He is the only way. He is clearly saying that there is no other way. The grammar is very clear. He is the way. The particular way. And in case you missed it, he repeats it. I love how Jesus is so gracious with us. He keeps telling us over and over the truth. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. You can't get more exclusive than that. I am the way. I am the only way. And no one, nobody, no how comes to the Father except through me. Why? Because I'm the only way. It makes perfect sense. Don't try to twist the scriptures. Jesus is using small words and short sentences. It's very clear. He's clearly saying that there is no other way. And Jesus will not allow us to remain comfortable with the way the world thinks. The world is happy to have Jesus be a good teacher. The world will even let us believe what's true for us. As long as we acknowledge that all ways lead to God. And no one could ever be wrong. But the world will not abide Jesus being the only You see, I think sometimes we think that Christians were persecuted in the New Testament era because they believed in Jesus, they believed in God, and they believed in the Bible. That's not true. The authorities were more than happy to let them believe that as long as they didn't say everyone had to believe that. And it's the only thing that's true. And I'm going to tell you this morning, that is the culture that we live in today. People will let you believe whatever you want, They'll let you believe that you think you're a dragon or a rock. As long as you don't impose your beliefs on anyone else. But you see, Jesus doesn't leave us that option. If he's the only way, if no one comes to the Father except through him, then that's what we must proclaim. This is the offensive thing about Christianity. As soon as Jesus places demands on people, they are offended. And that's because sinful man still wants to be God. He's trying to imitate Adam in the garden. 
Sinful man doesn't want to submit. So don't be foolish. We should not be foolish in rejecting Jesus' claim. We are foolish if we ignore our situation. Do you remember the rich fool in Luke 12? He looked out over his land and he said, I will build me grain storehouses more than anyone else. And I will fill them and I will sit back and my soul will be satisfied. You fool. This day your life will be required of you. You see, the rich fool was living as if Jesus didn't matter. As if he was immortal. And if we're not careful, we can live that way. We just assume tomorrow is going to happen. We assume next week. We assume next year. We act practically as if we're immortal. But we see how foolish that is when death comes. All the things that seemed important are no longer important. No one says on their deathbed, I wish I had worked more hours. No one says on their deathbed, I wish I had an extra iPad. I wish my car were two years newer. None of those things matter. We're foolish if we try to find another way. Jesus has provided the perfect way to the Father. What are we looking for? Because Jesus is God, we shouldn't expect another way to God. It's God bringing us to God. God opened the only way possible. If there were any other way possible other than the sacrifice of the Son of God, would that not have been taken? Finally, don't insult God. We have to consider who God is. And what he's done. God has made a way for those who have rebelled against him. While we were enemies with God, God in Christ was reconciling us to himself. There was nothing good in us to make God make a way back to him. We were lost in darkness and night, bound up in wickedness and sin, ignorant. And we insult God. When we reject his love, his sacrifice, and his provision. The words that Jesus speaks to us this morning are very important. Supremely important. The most important words you will ever hear. They're words of comfort and grace. Don't be troubled. Don't be afraid. Don't think you're alone. Jesus wants you to know there is hope. That he is your hope. That by believing in him, you can know God. You can know the way to God and you can have eternal life. Jesus is the only way, truth, and life. It is who he is. It's who he was always intended to. To be. We must look to Jesus. God's provision. For sinners. Let's pray.